Let's pray together. Father, we do indeed want our lives totally consecrated to you. We want to be sanctified and made into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, would you summon forth from our hearts thanks and glory to you for the indescribable gift that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. And establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say that this last week has been quite unusual in the life of our church. For whatever reason, the Lord saw fit to bring together in just a couple of days the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. From one of the most difficult funeral services imaginable on Friday to a festive and joyous wedding just yesterday. We all know the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time for the full range of human experiences and emotions. But we're just not accustomed, at least I'm not, to coming face to face with that full range in the space of a day. And yet, this weekend, we did. And I'm reminded of the words of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 14. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. So it's probably a good time to remind each other that Christian love calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. It's a sign of love when our hearts are so tied to another that my brother's joy becomes my joy and my sister's grief becomes my grief. Rejoicing and weeping are the gifts that we offer one another because we love each other. What happens to us as a church when we fail to love like that? What happens to us if we don't do what God's called us to, to do? What happens to you as a believer when you fail to love like that? You know, if, some, if somebody can't rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep, it's usually a sign that they are so emotionally obtuse that the only feelings they are in touch with are their own. That kind of person puts their own wants, their own desires, their own burdens, their own needs, their own highs, their own lows. They put all of their own stuff at the center of everything. And they expect everyone else to enter into their lives and into their joys and their highs and their lows. But they're not interested at all into entering into anyone else's life like that. And they're completely emotionally draining because they take, 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 but it never occurs to them to give. They're drainers in every group of people. Don't be a drainer. Such people are often completely oblivious to the fact that the Lord has called them not just to take, but to give. 
Acts chapter 20, verse 35 says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do we believe this? Do we believe that we get more blessing from giving than from getting? Or are we miserly in what we offer one another when there is a need, emotionally, materially, or otherwise? You know, I've been so encouraged to see so many of you rise to the occasion, not just this weekend, but in the weeks and the months leading up to this weekend. You gave and you gave and you gave and you gave, and you would give more if you had the opportunity. But how many of us may be missing the blessing because we haven't learned yet how much joy and pleasure come to those who give freely and liberally from a joyful heart. If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And we will, of course, be focusing on verses 1 through 15, the whole chapter. In chapters 8 through 9, we know that Paul has turned his attention to this offering that he's taking up for the poor saints who are in Jerusalem. There were these impoverished Jewish Christians in great need in that holy city. And Paul and the other apostles wished for the Gentile churches to meet the need with an offering. So in chapter 8, Paul invokes the generous example of the churches in Macedonia, another Gentile church. And he's invoking their example in chapter 8 to encourage the Corinthians to be generous as well. He promises to handle all of their offerings with integrity, to bring them to Jerusalem as promised. And chapter 9 is his final appeal for the Corinthians to make preparations for the offering before he arrives in Corinth to receive that offering from them. So that's what's happening in this chapter. At the very end of chapter 9, however... Paul shares what the foundation is for everything that he's about to command them to do. And if you look at the last verse in chapter 9, it says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Or if you're reading the ESV, it says his inexpressible gift. God's indescribable gift is Jesus himself and the salvation that he offers to his people. We all know John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. God's love is manifested in giving, the giving of his own son. This is the indescribable gift. God's gracious, self-sacrificial gift to us in Christ is the paradigm for our giving to one another. What characteristics should our giving have to match God's indescribable gift to us well there are at least three and that's what I want to focus on this morning the characteristics that we need to have to match his gift or we need to have readiness before giving generosity in giving and thankfulness after giving so readiness before giving in verses one through five generosity in giving in verses six to ten and then thankfulness after giving in verses eleven to fifteen so the first thing is readiness before giving. Everybody look at verse 1. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. I'll stop right there. Notice that ministry for the saints refers to the collection. 
that we already talked about. He's taking up for the Lord's people in Jerusalem. He's already expressed his confidence in their eagerness to contribute to this offering in chapter 8. So he knows that he doesn't have to stir them up on that account. They've already expressed eagerness to do this. They're eager to give. Look at verse 2. For I know your readiness, of which I, I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. That word translated as readiness, let me tweak that a little bit. Um, in the ESV, it says readiness, but it really has more the sense of eagerness. Okay? They're eager to give. So Paul is saying he knows that they're eager and willing to contribute. He's boasted about their eagerness to the Macedonian Christians who are north of them. And so when he tells the Macedonians that Achaia has been eager to give since last year, he's talking about Corinth. Achaia is the province of which Corinth is a city, okay, in which Corinth is a city. And so Paul reports about the Corinthians' eagerness to give, his reports about their eagerness to give, have has stirred up the Macedonians to give as well. You know, last December, I took uh, Susan and the, the kids to see um, a, a concert featuring uh, Amy Grant and uh, Michael W. Smith. It was a Christmas concert up in Indiana. And at the intermission, one of the musicians came out and made this compelling appeal for everybody in the audience to commit to supporting Compassion International, National, a, a charity uh, for children. And the guy who came out to encourage everybody to give was really, really good. And when you add to that the fact that Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant came out, and they also, um, uh, one or both of them both gave testimony to their endorsement and personal involvement in that ministry. And you could feel the energy in the room sort of growing towards generosity, towards giving. So the testimony of generosity by the performers moved everyone else to give as well. And countless people ended up signing up right there on the spot. That's the same kind of dynamic that's going on here between Macedonia in the north and Corinth in the, in the south. Paul is basically giving reports to the Macedonians about how eager the Corinthians are to give. And then Paul comes and tells the Corinthians how eager the Macedonians are to give. And they're stirring each other up to give. Look at verse 3. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. So far, Paul has really only spoken to the Corinthians' eagerness to give. They actually haven't made their full commitment yet. They haven't contributed the full amount yet. It's one thing to be eager to give. It's another thing to actually give. So Paul is sending ahead these brothers, which we talked about the last time I preached on 2 Corinthians. You remember these brothers, three of them, Titus and two unnamed Macedonian messengers. He's sending those brothers to get the Corinthians prepared to make their contribution before Paul arrives. In other words, they need to make practical preparations before Paul gets there. Why is that? Look at verse 4. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So here's the picture. Paul has been bragging to the Macedonian church about the Corinthians' eagerness to give, 
How embarrassing will it be for Paul if he arrives in Corinth with representatives from Macedonia, the church that he's already said, that church, Macedonia, gave out of their poverty. How humiliating will it be if Paul shows up in Corinth with those representatives and the Corinthians tell him the first century equivalent of, you know, I forgot my checkbook. I don't have any cash on me. I was really eager to give, but I didn't bring anything. Maybe next time. It would be really humiliating for Paul if the Corinthians' eagerness wasn't matched by their readiness to give. They needed to be prepared before he got there to make their contribution. You know, one of the more embarrassing faux pas that I fall into more frequently than I want to admit uh, is that when I'm traveling, I will often forget to bring my, any cash with me. And then I'll encounter a valet or a concierge or someone that I'm supposed to tip and they'll carry my things to my room or serve me in some way. And there's this awkward moment where they're waiting for the tip and I have to say, I don't have any cash. And, you know, every time I say that, they're looking at me and I'm looking at them and they kind of walk away and I think they don't believe me. They think I'm making this up. Um, but I, you know, I really, I don't have any cash. I try to tell them which really isn't an excuse because I know I'm going on a trip. I know I'm going to have these situations. I ought to be prepared. Paul's trying to avoid that kind of humiliation. So he says in verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. The Corinthians have already made, made known their eagerness to give. He wants it to stay that way. He doesn't want this to become an exaction where they're giving under compulsion. They've promised to make a contribution, but what if they don't have any cash or their checkbook when Paul gets there? He's trying to avoid the need for some kind of a hasty collection once he gets into town. He wants to, to avoid um, the embarrassment that that would cause him. So, Here's the thing. A big part of giving is the very practical matter of being ready to give. Being ready to give while it's time to give and before it's too late. Who cares if you're eager to give or to be generous if you haven't made the necessary practical arrangements to actually make the contribution when the need arises? The first practical consideration that you know, I would note is just simply that you need to make sure you have the resources to contribute in the first place. It doesn't matter if, you're, if you've got your checkbook, if there's no money in the, in the account that you're writing from. Now, as I'm saying this, I'm not addressing those of you who are unable to work and who are maybe some of you listening who are on fixed incomes, kind of barely getting by. I'm not even trying to lay an unnecessary burden on those of you who are in the financial purgatory known as being a student. I'm not putting any unnecessary burdens on you, but I am talking to those who are able to be gainfully employed, but just aren't because they're living in some kind of a prolonged adolescence, maybe not living up to their responsibilities. You will never be prepared to give and to care for others' needs if you've not embraced the responsibility of meet, meeting your own needs. Or if you have a family, meeting the needs of your family. 
For you being prepared means being gainfully employed and not going into debt and doing that for the glory of God. You know, people can become so leveraged that they can't do anything. Others of you are gainfully employed and still aren't giving what you should be giving, either to others to meet their needs or to the church, the ministries here. You, know, you need to know that your baseline responsibility to give should be to the ministries of this church. Have you made preparations to give by putting it into your budget? Do you have a budget? Or does all your money get spoken for because you spend with no planning at all? And as a result, there's nothing left to give up to build the work of the kingdom, to meet the needs of those who need help. If you're going to be a giver, like God is a giver, you've got to be prepared to give. And so Paul's exhorting them, be ready when I get there. Make all the practical preparations necessary for giving once I arrive. So he talks about readiness for giving in verses 1 through 5. But look at the second thing. He talks about generosity in giving in verses 6 through 10. Look at verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse 6 contains this well-known agricultural proverb, all things being equal, the size of the harvest will be in direct proportion to the amount of seed that's sown. If I go out in my backyard and I plant one apple seed, at most, how many apple trees are going to grow up from that? One, maybe none, but at most, uh, it, it would be one. One seed will yield one tree. It's not going to yield 10 trees. The less seed I plant, the less harvest I should expect. The more seed I plant, the more harvest I should expect. And you get the picture. The more miserly you are in giving, the less harvest you can expect from that. The more generous you are in what you give, the more blessing you can expect from that. Now, at this point, some people are looking at me and they're thinking, oh boy, sounds like a prosperity preacher has invaded the pulpit this morning. No, I'm not saying anything like that. Um, the prosperity uh, preachers are telling people that if they invest, if they give their money, then that money will come back to them and then some. And that's not what I'm telling you. In fact, Paul seems to be talking about a harvest of spiritual blessings, not a harvest of material wealth. That word bountifully translates a phrase that literally means in blessing. The one who sows in blessing will reap in blessing. In this sense, blessing refers to a generous gift bestowed on another person. But when Paul specifies what the fruit of that sowing of material blessing will be later in the passage, he says that the fruit is thanksgiving from those who receive the gift and greater unity between Jews and Gentiles as a result of the gift. The gift is, this is not, you know, money grubbing prosperity preaching that Paul's doing here. This is a kingdom calculus of blessing. So look at verse seven. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, 
For God loves a cheerful giver. You know, one of the things that Paul wants them to do in preparing beforehand for his visit is to decide for themselves how much they wish to give. Paul doesn't want to show up and tell them how much they need to give. He doesn't want to try to squeeze juice from a turnip. He wants them to, to make that own determination for themselves, and he wants them to give freely and not under compulsion, not as an exaction, it says. The sign that that kind of giving is happening will be when they give cheerfully. True generosity not only gives, but is also joyful in the giving. Cranky, complaining giving does not honor the Lord or the people that you're giving to. Cranky, complaining giving is what you do when you pay your taxes. That kind of giving speaks of being put out. It speaks of compulsion. You know, it's our, that time of year, every year, where we all get to be cranky about the IRS, the one government agency about which no, almost nobody has any warm feelings. Seems to be bipartisan agreement about that. Okay, that, that's, that's giving under compulsion. No love in that necessarily. Joyful giving is what you do when you give to your kids. You can't give them enough. You don't even care about what you get at Christmas anymore. Really, all your happiness on Christmas morning gets transformed entirely into what kind of joy you can bring to your kids. That's the whole event. That's the main event now. That's cheerful giving. It's the only kind of giving that expresses love for the one that you're giving to. And for that reason, it's the only kind of giving that brings honor to the Lord. So look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God is able not only to make spiritual blessings abound, he's also able to make material blessings abound. And that's exactly what he's done for the Corinthians. They have not been enriched only with all manner of spiritual blessings. That, that, that has happened. They've also been given all sufficiency in all things, which indicates material blessings sufficient for them to make a contribution for this offering that Paul's taking up. So the situation in Corinth, as Paul writes to them, is different from that of the Macedonians. You remember the Macedonians gave out of their poverty. But now you've got the Corinthians, Paul says, who have all sufficiency in all things. They've got way more wealth, apparently, than the Macedonians have. And they've been blessed by God with more. And their giving needs to reflect that. Verse 9, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, you have to think about this for a minute. Because when you read that, you'll, you'll recognize, first of all, it's a direct quotation from the text that Aaron Davis read earlier. Psalm chapter 112 and verse 9. Um, it, but, but you have to look at this because it looks like he's talking about God. He has distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. It, it's actually, that's not talking about God. In context, in the context of the psalm, the one who's distributed freely and given to the poor is, the, is a blessed man who fears the Lord. So it's a person who's doing the giving 
there. That man's righteousness endures forever. His righteousness is not based on his generosity. Rather, his generosity is the fruit of his righteousness that he has from God by faith. Just as the blessed man of the psalm gives freely to the poor, Paul says, so also you Corinthians are to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And your righteousness will endure forever. It reminds you when Jesus said, uh, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you, chosen you to bear fruit, fruit that will last. Our works withstand the fires of judgment when they are done in righteousness. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You know, one commentator, Colin Cruz, explains what Paul means here in verse 10. I'm just going to read to you. He says, God will multiply the material resources of the Corinthians. And as they scatter them to meet the needs of the Judean Christians, he will increase the effect of that righteous deed. The Corinthians, by making a monetary gift, will sow the seed and God will increase the effect of that righteous deed so that it produces a rich harvest of unity, love, and thanksgiving. End quote. What's the harvest? Material blessing? No. Spiritual blessing that's planted in the Judean Christians and then is growing up in unity and love and thanksgiving. So it's a joyful material sowing of money, but a rich spiritual harvest of love and thanksgiving. The only way for anybody to be truly generous like this is for them to love the one that they're giving to. When you love somebody truly, you are willing to give till it hurts. That's really the only time you want to give until it hurts, when you love that person. When I was dating Susan, we were living in the same city of Dallas, Texas, same metro area, but we were living very far apart. From my front door to hers was about 18 miles. 18 miles in Dallas traffic means something like 30 minutes to an hour of driving, depending on traffic. And so the quickest way for me to get there would be to get on this one toll road. Toll road. So I had to pay to go see her or take surface streets, which could take up to an hour or more, you know, if I was trying to save money. And so making that trip got to be pretty expensive. And I was in financial purgatory of being a student at the time. So this was a big deal. But you know what? It didn't matter. To me, what it cost me in money or in time. I was burning up the roads to see her every single day. I didn't want to miss her on a day. I would have paid twice as much to get to where she was every day because I love her. Now, would I pay that to go see an IRS agent? <laughs> would I pay that to go to my favorite restaurant? I wouldn't even do it then. No, but I will pay it for her because she's more valuable to me than any cost I might incur to see her. So I'm like, take my money. I was the happiest toll road payer in Dallas. The generosity that God expects of us is the fruit of love. If you don't love God or people, you will never give as the Lord wants you to give. If you wish to cultivate generosity, you have to cultivate love. If you want to cultivate cheerful, sacrificial generosity, you have to cultivate love. You remember the sinful woman in Luke's gospel 
who poured an expensive alabaster jar of ointment on Jesus, washed his feet with her tears? How does Jesus explain her generous gift? Luke chapter 7. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your capacity for generosity will be directly proportional to your capacity for love. And your love will be directly proportional to how much you understand you have been loved by God. If you understand that you've been loved and forgiven much, you are going to be generous. And you are going to hold your things loosely. And your things will become other people's things. So Paul talks about the characteristics of matching the indescribable gift. It involves readiness in giving, generosity in giving. And when those things are present, it can bring forth thankfulness after giving from those that you give to. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, their being enriched, once again, refers to how much God has provided for them materially. And God's given to them so that they can give to the poor saints in Jerusalem. The gift that they're giving through Paul will produce thanksgiving to God from those Jews who are receiving the gift. That's what he means here. So look at verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And this is where it becomes really clear that the material sowing results in spiritual reaping. For the Jews who receive this gift will be turning their faces towards heaven and thanking God for this gift from their Gentile brothers and sisters that they've never met. Is there anything more glorifying to God than Jews and Gentiles who were once alienated from one another, separated from one another, and in some sense, you know, at enmity with one another? Is there anything more glorifying to God than Jews and Gentiles, formerly separate, now loving each other and relying on each other in Jesus' name? Look at verse 13. By their approval of this service, the Jews' approval of your giving. That's what he's talking about. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. This says that the Jews are not only going to thank God for the gift, they're also going to glorify God because of the Gentiles' confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their giving is an evidence that they have partaken of the same gospel that the Jews have. The very same gospel that saved the Jews is now saving the Gentiles, and that same gospel is causing the Gentiles joyfully and sacrificially to give to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem whom they've never met. And not only that, verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you 
because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. The Jews now are longing for their Gentile brothers and sisters in distant land called Corinth. You remember in the New Testament, they didn't even want to walk through Samaria? You remember that? Now the Jews are longing for their brothers and sisters who are Gentiles. And they're praying for them because God's grace is so evident in them. Do you see how the spiritual blessings are not only meeting the physical needs of the Jews, but it's causing love and unity and glory to God within the church? And so Paul gives this exclamation at the end. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift or his indescribable gift. Paul's concluding this section by thanking the one who made this peace and unity between Jews and Gentiles possible. This whole passage has been about the gift that Paul intends to take to Jerusalem, but this final piece is about the gift that God has given to his people, the Lord Jesus himself, and the salvation that he's purchased for them by his death and resurrection. Paul says that this gift is inexpressible or indescribable. That word is actually, in Greek, a word that doesn't appear anywhere in Greek literature until Paul says it here. So, obviously, Paul has made up a word to describe this gift that the Lord has given us in Jesus. Its value and content are so great that words fail in description. It very much reminds us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You remember this? But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. If you know the value of the gift that you've been given through Christ, how can you fail to give your own material blessing for the sake of the kingdom? About 100 years ago, there was a young man named William Borden who knew that what he had been given was great from the Lord. And so he wished to give all that he had for the sake of Christ. Borden, William Borden was fabulously wealthy. He was the heir of the entire Borden Dairy Estate. So yes, that Borden. And yet he felt the call of God on his life to be a missionary. When he graduated from high school in 1904, his parents sent him as a 16-year-old boy on a trip around the world. And as Borden traveled through Asia and the Middle East and Europe, he felt this growing burden for the throngs of lost and hurting people that he encountered while he was on this trip. And because of what he experienced, he wrote home about his desire to become a missionary. And he became bound and determined to preach the gospel to the Muslim Kansu people in northwest China. As you can imagine, you're fabulously wealthy. Not everybody's going to give you attaboys for that decision. There were many people in Borden's life who had a difficult time coping with this decision that he had made. And one of his friends expressed openly his astonishment that Borden was, quote, throwing away, throwing himself away as a missionary, end quote. And so here was the question that everyone was asking. How could a person with such tremendous wealth just leave it all behind? In response, Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserves. Meaning, Borden would not hold anything back from Christ. There would not be any resource or talent that would be saved up for himself. 
None of his wealth and fortune would be his for himself. It would all belong to Christ. And so he says, no reserves in the back of his Bible. And that's exactly how he lived during his college years as he prepared for his mission to China. He ended up going to Yale University in 1905 trying to look the part of an ordinary freshman, but it wasn't long before his classmates, classmates realized that he was kind of different from them. And it wasn't because he had a lot of money. One of them wrote this about him. They said, quote, he came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because of this settled purpose and consecration, end quote. And it was in this time of Borden's life that he made an entry in his personal journal that defined what his classmates were seeing in him. He wrote, quote, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time, end quote. Borden believed that Christ had purchased him and that therefore Christ owned him. So God turned Borden's time at Yale into four years of unbelievably fruitful ministry. In his first year at Yale, Borden began uh, a work that transformed the campus. With just a handful of classmates, he started this morning prayer and Bible study group, and by the end of the year, there were 150 students in this. By the end of his time at Yale, there were 1,000 of the 1,300 students at Yale who were involved in these prayer and Bible study groups. In the middle of this work, Borden was a relentless evangelist, going after the most wayward Yaleys on campus to bring them to Christ. His ministry went beyond Yale's campus. He cared for and spent his wealth on widows and orphans and disabled people in New Haven, Connecticut. He rescued drunks from the streets of the city to try to rehabilitate them. He founded what became known as the Yale Hope Mission. And one of Borden's friends wrote this about him. They said, he might often be found in the lower parts of the city at night, on the street, in a, treap, in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor, hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead men to Christ. After Borden graduates, he turns down all these lucrative job offers. And in his Bible, he wrote two more words. Under no reserves, he wrote, no retreats. Borden would not be turned back from what God had called him to do, and he would only press forward in his pursuit of Christ. There would be no retreats. So he finishes seminary eventually at Princeton, and he sails for China, finally, to the great mission that he felt called to. Because he was going to be working with Muslims, he stopped first in Cairo, Egypt, so that he could learn Arabic. And while he was in Cairo, he, con he contracted cerebral meningitis. And at 25 years old, he died in Cairo, Egypt. Word spread quickly of his death back in the United States as the story was carried in just about every single newspaper in the country. And in her introduction to his biography, Mary Taylor wrote this about his death. She said, It was as though a wave of sorrow went round the world. For Borden not only gave his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it was manifestly a privilege rather than a sacrifice. After Borden died, 
they found his Bible and that he had written two more words underneath, no reserves and no retreats. As he lay dying, he wrote, no regrets. Whereas the world and even some of his friends looked on his life as wasted, Borden had come to a different conclusion, even as he lay dying, no regrets. So this is the great legacy of Borden of Yale. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. This is the radical generosity of a man who knows how much he has been loved by God. He was willing to lay aside his wealth for the sake of love, for the sake of the progress of the gospel among a people who had never heard of Christ. And when he dies on the way to that work, he says no regrets. I have regrets when I get stuck in a long line and miss the red light because of traffic. I read a story like Borden's and I see just how little my generosity and love really are. How many of us have really laid hold of how much we have been loved by God? If we had, would it not be manifest in the way that we give? Would it not be evident in the way that we see to one another's needs? Would it not be plain in the way that we contribute to the needs of this church? I said at the beginning of this message that the past week has been unusual in the life of this church, and in some ways it has, but in some important ways, it hasn't been unusual. The truth is, is that there are always needs every week in this congregation. We need people to give to the work of the kingdom every week at this congregation. There are people who need love and attention every week. And if you're failing in generosity, the way that you heal that is by an increase in love. And the way that you realize an increase in love is to realize how much you have been loved and how much you have been given. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, the Bible says that all people are sinners. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us sitting here are sinners. Because of that, the Bible says that you have earned for yourself judgment, which means separation from God in a place of pain and torment forever if you die in your sins. But the Bible also says that because of his great love towards us, God demonstrated his own love towards us in while that we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God didn't leave you in a place of sinfulness and judgment. He sent his son to live the life that you should have lived and to die the death that you deserved to die. And then God raised up Jesus three days later so that if you believe in him, repent of your sin and believe in him, you will be saved. You can't earn this salvation. God earned it for you through Jesus. You just have to receive it by repentance and faith. If you haven't done that, you need to repent and believe because that is where the wellspring of love and generosity comes from. Let me pray for you. Father, use this word to transform us into the image of your own dear son. I pray that you would in ways that are appropriate to the individual situation of every person in this church, you would convict and move your people to be more generous with their material blessings, with their spiritual blessings, with their willingness to sit with a friend and to listen 
to enter into their life, into their pain, their struggles, to enter into their joys. Lord, for others who need to be giving more materially, I pray that you would call them to that, enable them to do that, help them to make preparations for that, and do this work. And Lord, may there be a harvest of righteousness that will endure forever. And we ask you to do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.